Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are studying in the last chapter of Daniel, and today we are looking into a subject that is very important and is truly filled with information that we have never heard before. We are looking at Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 and 9. Doug has named this lesson, Understanding God's Plan. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets each and every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of our new Worship Center building. We have time for fellowship beginning at about 8.45, and immediately following the class time, we take the escalator up one floor to the beautiful Worship Center where we hear our pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress, teaching from the Bible. We would love to have you visit our class if you're in the area. It starts promptly at 9.15 a.m. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin this great lesson, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the First Baptist Church in downtown Dallas, Texas. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We've been studying in the book of Daniel. We're in the last chapter of that book. Some of you are saying, shoot, we seem like we've been in the last chapter of that book for two months. But each, each week I say, well, I'm going to cover more than one verse. And then it just doesn't seem to happen. If you remember last time when we were studying Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, we talked about a judgment that's coming up. And who are going to be the objects of that judgment? Who are going to be the people who are being judged? Everyone in this room, unless, of course, you've never received Jesus as your personal Savior, then you won't. But other than that, everybody in this room, everybody who's a believer, everybody who's a member of the church. Now, will you be judged for your sin? No. When were your sins judged? On the cross. But you will be judged on what you have done as far as obedience, the things that you have done that God has instructed you to do. It'll be a judgment that expresses approval of accomplishments or disappointment for the lack of accomplishments. Now, you will be judged on a curve, but it's a special curve. It's comparing what God gave you as far as time, talent and treasure versus what you did with it. And that's the curve, so to speak. So, you know, the question you got to ask yourself is, how do you think you'll do? Well, no, don't answer that because I don't want to have to answer that. Can, can you bribe the teacher like sometimes we do? Um, you can't bribe this judge. He's unbribable. Uh, there's nothing you can give him that he doesn't already have. So I would not even suggest offering anything. 
Uh, that would just be a bad idea. You notice in the notes it says that he compares this judgment to two things. First, his instructions to us is to run the race like you want to win. Like you're trying to win. Not that you're just trying to, to make it. I remember watching a race one time, and there was a guy who had been really fast, but he got a little older. And they ran this race, and he, he was last. And they interviewed the guy who won. And they said to him, well, you know, you ran a really good race. Did you see what this guy ran? The guy who, yeah, he was buck naked last. And so they immediately went to interview that guy. And they said, do you know he said, he said I was buck naked last? Well, you could see the embarrassment on his face. Now, that guy ran that race faster probably than anybody in this room could have run it. But he was last. And that's the kind of situation we're going to be facing in that judgment. And I can tell you, I don't want to be buck naked last. Now, as we pass through Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, and we move to verse 4, there are some unusual instructions. Because, you know, this book was supposed to be about teaching us and preparing us what we need to know to survive in what's coming. But let's look at this verse. We're going to look at verse 4 and 9 because they're repetitive in a way. But before we do, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that we can meet here today. I thank you that you've given us this wonderful room in which to meet. And I thank you that you've been growing our class steadily and that we're getting larger and larger and we're able to make more friends and have greater fellowship and be able to share the scriptures with more and more people and have that fellowship and koinonia here that, that we can have together. Help us, Father, to always remember that we're part of the same family and that we need not to have family strife, but to instead have family support and that uh, we each encourage each other. I pray now, Father, as we open your word, that you have your Holy Spirit direct each of us and that he be the teacher and not me and that we are able to understand what it is that you want us to see this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, starting in Daniel chapter 4, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. May, many will go back and forth, and the knowledge will increase. And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up till the end of time. Now, I would suggest to you that that instruction by the Holy Spirit is rather strange. He wants him to conceal and to seal up the book. Is that not unusual? Why do you give this favored prophet a vision and have him recorded in a book and then appear to say, uh, I don't want no one to know about it until sometime way in the future? Does that not, well, I want us to open this up and to try and look and see what that means. But the first thing you say, I want you to understand is this is not the first time that this happened. In Daniel chapter 7, 28, it says, at this point, the revelation ended. But as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. When it says in Hebrew, it is greatly alarming. It's the kind of concern. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where, where this is going. And he's concerned because of that. Again, 
in chapter 8, verse 27, which was the vision of the ram and the goat. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days, and then I got up and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. He said he couldn't understand what the vision really meant. Now, I'm going to suggest something to you that you may find rather surprising. But if you have been following this study in Daniel with us the entire time, if you were to be transported back and you sit in a room with Daniel the prophet, and let's say you can both speak the same language, you'd be answering his questions and not him answering yours. You would be able to tell. For example, you could say, well, I know when the end time is. You see, it's when Israel came back into the land. Say, wait, Israel's already come back into the land. Yeah, but they're not going to be there long. They're going to be there about six and a half centuries, Daniel, and then they're going to be spread out again. Again, we have to do this all over again? Yeah, so we're going to have to wait another 70 years to come back? No, not 70. How long? 1,800? 1,800 years, yes. And when you come back, You'll have part of the land, but you won't even have Jerusalem. How can that be? We come back and we don't have Jerusalem. Well, you're not. You have to wait another 20 years and then you'll get Jerusalem. Daniel would be astounded at the things you know that he doesn't know. And we need to understand that. Now, I want you to see that we start off with this word, conceal. And I want you to look at it. We're going to focus, conceal these words. Then down in verse 9, these words are concealed. Now, this word, Hebrew word for conceal, is the word satam. And satam can be translated to stop up or shut up, or to keep close, or to conceal. Some Bibles translate it stop up here. That's not a good translation. The best translation is conceal. What he's doing, he's not closing it up so that you can't see it, but he's putting it in a way that you may not be able to understand it. Have you ever seen, I've seen pictures before of some of these military guys who are so good, and you see a picture and you say, there's three soldiers there. And you say, where? I don't see any soldiers. Well, yeah, that's the whole point. They are concealed. But then you see in the video, they move, and all of a sudden, oh, well, there they are. But you couldn't see him. It's the same concept here. He's talking about concealed, hidden. Do you remember that Jesus started doing this? He started after he was rejected by the nation of Israel. When they'd ask him a question afterwards, what means would he use to answer the question? Parables. If you look in Matthew 13, verse 10, it says, And the disciples came and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you doing that, Jesus? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but not to them it has not been granted. And he goes on to explain all of that. So this word, conceal, can mean three things again. I want you to, it can mean to hide or close something up so that it can't be found or discovered. Or it can mean that hide or close it up that would prevent certain people from discovering it, but not others. Or it could mean that after the passage of time, it could be discovered or understood by most. I think these two second meanings is what's going on here, both of them together. 
Middle Eastern writers, if you remember, they, you, you write really well if you can take one word that has several meanings, but apply all of those meanings to the same concept in the same sentence. In other words, with that one word, you're using two different meanings to magnify. So, we have this concept of concealing that Daniel is told to do. Let me give you another example of how this works in the spiritual realm. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, it says this, But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted, because it was removed in Christ. But to this day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, that's in the same way concealing. Question is, who was responsible, Ed, you think, for removing the veil? God was exactly right. In other words, he makes the scriptures alive or he makes them where you can't understand them. He can do that. And we're going to see that even more as we go on. Well, what was the next instruction? I want you to conceal this vision. He said, I also want you to seal it up. Now, this word to seal means to affix a seal to something. But there can be two kinds of seals. There can be a physical seal and there can be a spiritual seal. You say, well, I'm familiar with a physical seal, but what about a spiritual? Well, let's look at the physical seal first. A good example of this was when Jesus was crucified and he was buried. You remember the Pharisees came in and said, listen, this guy promised that he's going to come back in three days. We need a guard and we need you to seal it. Now, it's important to understand this concept of a seal. If no one was there and I had my pocket knife, could I break through that seal real easily? Yes. But if the Romans caught me, it's kind of like this. You know, you can be driving down the street and a police officer stops and holds his hand up. Well, you could just run him right over. He doesn't have the power to stop you, but he has the authority and you better think twice before you would ever even think of keeping going. It's the same concept. The seal speaks of authority, not necessarily power. So the seal here is God's seal. Is it physical? I don't think so. I don't think it was a... I take that back. I'm going to share something with you. I found just this week at the end of the week that I wish I'd known before. But there's also spiritual seals. And in Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 2, John tells us this, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, having the seal of the living God. Did you know God had a seal? He did. And he does. And what he does in this passage, he picks 144,000 Jewish men, 12,000 from each tribe, and he places his seal on their forehead. Now, I don't know whether you can see it. It may be not. It maybe can only see by God or and his angelic beings. But because of that seal, they can't be killed. They can't be hampered in their mission because of that seal. You also could look in Revelation 5 where there was the scroll. And how many seals did that scroll have? Seven. Now, could anybody break those seals? 
No. And in fact, John started crying because there's no one to break the seals. And then, then one of the living beings said to him, no, the lamb can break those seals. So Jesus came in and he started opening the scroll, breaking one at a time. That's the kind of spiritual seal I'm talking about. Now, in the ancient Middle East, they had this practice I found. And here's what they would do. When there would be an important document, maybe a deed or a special contract, they would come to the gates of the city where uh, the government, and they would present and say, we have made this agreement. And they would have two copies of this document besides the two, the copy for each side. And one copy they would seal and they would have the, the city or the kingdom seal it and it would be sealed away in a safe place. And the second one they gave to them, this would be the public document where people could read it and see it. You couldn't get access to the one that was sealed. It was put away, saved for some important event. You know, if this one was lost, then they'd ordain somebody or hire somebody, engage somebody to write another public copy. But they would keep that one sealed in a safe place. You ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? That may be one of God's plans for keeping documents in a safe place until the right time came, which turned out to be 1947. But, you know, 1947, how long did it take them just to be able to unroll those scrolls and to, to get everything in a condition where they could use it? Then, the interesting part is, what books do you think they looked at first? the Bible's books that were there. And they were studying those. Just recently now, we're starting to look at some of the other books that were there and see the different things that are there. Now, we're not going to get into what was actually there that are not biblical. But I want you to see that God many times says, I'm taking this and I'm putting it. And it can be figuratively or literally in a place where I'm keeping it a safekeeping. Now, do you think Antiochus IV would have loved to have destroyed all copies of Daniel? Yes. Absolutely. He tried, among with other books, but he failed. And God did not allow it, and so we have this book. Now, why was this information sealed, and why was the book concealed? Why would God do that? I have to admit to you, I'm a guy that always asks why. I like to know why. I don't know how many of you know Peter uh, Wang, Peter Wong, excuse me. Uh, he just passed away. I went to his service. This, uh, my law firm was involved when he was involved in a heinous accident with a dog attack and his fine, uh, spinal cord was severed and he became a quadriplegic. This, prior to that, he had been the active traveling minister to the Chinese here at our church. He would have this special ministry. Every time China would send somebody over to go to school, he would go meet them. And he would try to win them to the Lord. And he was extremely successful in that. Many times they would want to stay in the United States and be involved in the ministry, or else they would go back to China as missionaries. And his daughter shared this story. I'm going to try and say it unaffected that she asked him sometime after the accident, Dad, did you ever ask God why he let this happen? And she said, he didn't hesitate a minute. The first thing he said was no. He said, all I need to know is that God knows why. Now, is that not faith? I just trust God. 
as long as he knows, everything is fine. So, what's going on here that I want you to see? To start with, it's sealed. And for six and a half centuries, this remained like that. And then the Apostle John wrote the book of the Revelation, the Apocalypse. And look what he says at the end of the Apocalypse in verse, chapter 22, verse 10. And he, that is an angelic being, said to me, John, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, for the time is near. Now, we're going to see that there is a shelf life in this sealing and concealing that Daniel put in verse 4. And I want you to see it again. Let's look at it because this is a key word to understanding this prophecy. And that word, this little word, until. Now, this word is short in the Hebrew. It's ad. It can mean several things. If your Bible says that it means even, that is a very poor translation what it should be translated under this context is until because it's going to give three criteria and then it's going to be unconcealed and it's going to be unsealed I know I'm sounding like I'm saying the same thing but until, until when I want you to look at these three things after the meaning of this concept until number one in the confluence of these three events the end of time is number one as far as what's going to happen. Number two is many will go back and forth. And number three, knowledge will increase. Those three things, when they happen, the book, this portion of the book at least becomes unconcealed and unsealed. So when is that? Have these things happened? What do we know? All right, let's look at them and let's see. We're going to start with the first one. The end of time. This is a term that carries with it a little bit of ambiguity. When is the end of time? Does that mean the week before an event? Does that mean a year before the event? Does it mean 10 years, a century, a millennial before the event? When is the end of time? Well, I can't tell you when it exactly starts. John said the time is near, but I can tell you that I believe firmly that we are in the end of time. And I will tell you why. You see, although Daniel doesn't tell you when it is, the end of time. God doesn't, Daniel doesn't tell you exactly where it is. There are other passages in the scriptures which open this up, like the book of Revelation, like Matthew 24 and 25, like uh, 1 Thessalonians, and then 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So what we need to look at is things like that. For example, in Matthew 24, starting in verse 21, Jesus says this, For then there will be a great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor will ever, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Focus on that phrase, no life would have been saved. Now, is that referring to human life? It's all life. Let's say, go back in time a hundred years, just a hundred years. Did we have the means to destroy all life in the earth? We did? No. Maybe 1948 was when, 1945, right in there, when we developed uh, uh, nuclear or atomic weapons, not nuclear yet, but atomic. That was the start of it. There probably were some, some maybe some bioweapons that we didn't know about yet that 
But you go back much farther than that. You couldn't destroy all life on the world. Can we now easily? All we got to have is have the wrong idiots on the button, so to speak. You know, also in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, it talks about the last week. You know, Israel is in the land now. It couldn't be the end time without Israel in the land. But Israel's in the land. And Israel now has Jerusalem. This is, in my mind, the end of days, the last time. Now, could Israel get kicked out of the land? And now, we, the end of times, really not for another thousand years? Well, I guess they could. Is that going to happen? Not a chance. In fact, they would all be destroyed before they'd be kicked out. Yes? Listening to one minister who said, not only that, but in Ezekiel, when it says they will draw them into the mountain. Yes. They didn't have any mountains until the 67 war, and then Trump gave them a golden hunt, and they've now got all the mountains back. So that's set up. So that's the first thing I want you to say. Huh? It says, and I will plant the public. This is after Israel's back in the country. They rebuild the cities, they plant vineyards, they plant gardens. Verse 15, I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them. And you're saying that refers to this time here in 1948. Now, you, that's what you guys always try and do. You get ahead of me. Because I'm starting right now with knowledge will increase. I'm going to number three, because number two is the hardest of all. Oh, Susan. Israel got, has only one-fifteenth of the land that God yes. gave them. And that's coming back to them, too. True, but have they ever had all the land that God gave them? No. No, but they will. They will. That promise will be kept. Now let's look at this word knowledge just a minute. If you're looking in your notes, you can see this word is da'at. And da'at means knowledge, but it also means perception, discernment, and understanding. Here again, I think this word is being used with multiple meanings here. What is he saying? Knowledge, not only knowing of things, but to be able to discern what they mean and have understanding is going to increase. Now, this word increase is in the imperfect, meaning it's a continuing action. But it's, it's kind of like exponential that it moves on and on. You see what I'm saying? It keeps growing. And so that is this concept of this meaning. Now, this phrase, that is, knowledge will increase, has really a two-part picture. Number one, it speaks of a gathering of information. Think about the information explosion that has occurred in our lifetime. Information has, the percentage of things we know now has grown so vast and so quickly that it's amazing. And that is what the first picture is. You've got all this knowledge, 
But how do you put it together? You know, some things have nothing to do with what we would want to consider. And so you have to be able to extract this knowledge, gather it together, and accumulate it and examine it so that you can put it together and see how it fits. It's like working a jigsaw puzzle. You've got to start off and you've got all these pieces everywhere. And then slowly but surely you start piecing them together, right? That's this concept with the knowledge in one respect. Yes? Consider the reversal of the Babel effect of the translation ability, the quick, easy way to translate, like Google Translate everything. Almost the reversal of Babel. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, Julie. Oh, they've got chips where they can put in your brain and immediately know a language. And... Now, I don't want you to get one of those. Please. All right, let's, let's move on quickly and then we'll come back. Now, there's a second thing, and that's a storehouse effect. In other words, this knowledge is being added to consistently. And once that threshold, once the information is gathered, once we get to that threshold where we've got sufficient knowledge, then the concealing drops away and the sealing stops, God unseals. So I'm convinced that in our time at least, that criteria has been met. Number one, the end of time based on other scriptural passages. Number two, knowledge has increased to the point where we know so much more than Daniel did. We know so much more than John did. It's amazing how much we know. Now, the middle one, number two, is harder. It's more difficult to, to understand. And it, it says many will go back and forth. Now, in the King James, it translates, many will go to and fro. Equal translation, it's the same thing. Now, I have prepared a little test for somebody in the room. And it's not Don, it's Dawn. <laughs> you notice the word many. In other passages, it says the many. When it says the many, Don, who does it refer to? Israel. Israel. But there is no definite article in front of this word, so it just means a lot of people. Okay, so don't think this is talking about Israel here, because it doesn't say the many. This is a lot. Now, they will go back and forth. Well, I'm telling you, the interpretation of this are all across the board. For example, if you were to open up your Ryrie Study Bible, which is the main Bible that I, I use as I start my studies, you will see that he says, some scholars have understood these words to mean people will travel here and there seeking to discover what the future holds. It's all about travel. And he's saying the travel will be growing. Now, why would... Well, there's something I want you to understand about this phrase. You know, this phrase, to, to go back and forth, it's not three or four words in the Hebrew. It's only one. One word. And it's the word shoot. And it's, in a, it's a verb. It's in the polel stem. Now, you've probably never heard me say the polel stem because it's rare. But it expresses intensive or intentional action or both. Now, let me say that again. So it expresses intensive action or it can express intensive action or it can... Well, let me give you an example. You have a kid... And with some other kids, they're out playing baseball. And all of a sudden, hard line drive, crack right through the window. All right? 
and it happens to be Hayes' house. <laughs> and Hayes just happens to be there, and he comes out, and he's got the ball in his hand. Now, did that kid mean to break Hayes' window? No, he just wanted to have a good hit and uh, to play the game well and to win. He didn't mean to crack his window. If he could do it over, he wouldn't have done it. But that would be not polel. But think of another example. The game's over, and that, this kid has that ball, and they say, you know, right up there, that's old man Hayes' house. <laughs> <clears throat> and he throws the ball right through his window. That's Polel, intending it and intention, and it crashes right through that glass. You see the difference. It has to do with motive and action. This phrase is in the Polel. It's intensive and it's intentional. They are, if you look at the meaning of this word, one of the ones I've highlighted in there is go eagerly and quickly to or fro. They are excited about what they're doing and they're intending to do this. Does it mean travel? No, I don't believe it means travel. Does it mean those severe increases in technology and the use of technology in all of this? No, I don't believe that either. Now, are you saying, Doug, that the Bible doesn't ever speak about an increase in technology? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that at all. It absolutely does. Let me give you a couple of examples just so you can understand what I am saying about this. In Zechariah 14, 12, it's talking about the end times. And it says, now this will be a plague with which the Lord will strike the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Are we talking about a bioweapon? Absolutely yes. Who's it going against? The enemies of Israel. And who is utilizing this bioweapon? The Lord God Almighty. Do you see that? And what happens? And he says, and their flesh will rot away while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Yeah. Do you see there's technology referred to in the Bible? It could be, or it could be a bioweapon, a plague. And that's what it seems to indicate it's a plague. Look at a Revelation 11:7 for another example. It says, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast, that is these two witnesses, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. That is Jerusalem. So what happens? These two witnesses, some people believe it's Moses and Elijah, they're going to be killed and their bodies are just going to be left on the street. And those from the peoples, the tribes, the tongues, and the nations. Now, who's excluded from that group? No one. Those from the peoples, the tribes, the tongues, and the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. Now, there was a time, like in the 1700s, this is clearly fabricated. There is no possible way that everybody on earth can see their bodies laying in the streets for three and a half days. Is that true now? Of course not. We can see anything all over the world. They can take a satellite and they can see your license plate with that satellite camera now if they want to. And read it easily. It's amazing 
the technology. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't speak of things that have to include technology to be able to, to make it happen. But I still don't think that is what's happening here. The verb that is used here is almost always used to speak of someone who is urgently searching for someone or something. Here it appears to be an understanding and discernment that is not just to accumulate the knowledge necessary to know, but actually to know. It's people, many people, who want to know desperately. Do you see that in our times? Do you see these prophecy conferences all over the world and all over our nation, everywhere? Like lamb and lion. What are they going to talk about this time? The rapture. Is anybody in here interested in the rapture? I'm just hoping, yes. I'm just hoping that we don't make it to the lamb and lion because we get raptured first. And I'm sure Dave won't mind that at all. But the fact is, everybody, people want to know. Eschatological matters are now forefront in so many of us. You say, yeah, that's what you seem to think, Doug. And it makes sense what you're saying, but can you give me a biblical basis for wanting to say this is about searching for knowledge? If you're asking that question, I'm glad you asked. Let me show you. Look here in Amos. That's a book we don't look at too much. Amos chapter 8 verse 12. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east and they will go to and fro. That's that word. Shoot. To and fro to seek the word of the Lord but they will not find it. In this passage it's saying they're going and they're searching desperate but they won't find it. But in Daniel 12 he said, when these three things come into a common vortex, they will find it. We will come to learn. And we will come to see. And people will know what God says will happen and when. What do you think the common vortex is? Well, it's the coming, joining together of those three things. The end of time, the people searching madly to know, and the accumulation of so much knowledge. Now, there's one other part that I haven't spoken of yet that I think will maybe provide the answer to that question. It's a good question. But you want to know why? The reason is they want to run their own lives. They don't want to have to believe there's a supreme being who has a right to control them and to say what they can do and what they can't. They don't want that. They are in complete rebellion to their creator. And that's just what we have to deal with. But... Can the Holy Spirit cut through that? Absolutely. He can. And He has the power to do that. And it's through God's love. But let's go on. You see, God intends to conceal the meaning of this vision and to control it through His seal of authority or ownership. But that'll change when these three circumstances come together to create this perfect vortex. First, the timeline on the earth will be near to its end. Second is that the people will be searching for knowledge, seeking discernment, compiling understandings with an intensity like, unlike anything before its time. And finally, the final contributing factor will be the threshold of knowledge reaches its critical mass. However, we have to come to an understanding of how God is going to reveal this. We need to see it because God has 
three different ways for revealing His truth to us specifically. And I want to go through those quickly before we finish and see how this works. We want you to understand the first way that God does this is through the process of revelation. Revelation, what does that mean? I'm not talking about the book. I'm talking about the act of revelation where God tells a person key information. Let me give you some examples so that we can understand. In Romans 16.25, we looked at this uh, last, last week. Paul is saying, Now to him who was able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. The revelation. He revealed it to Paul. Paul reiterates that down in Ephesians 3, 3 through 5, that by the revelation that was made to me, the mystery, as to how it was revealed to his holy apostles. Now, here's my question. Where was Paul when this revelation came? Two places. What's the first one? The road to Damascus. Where's the second one? Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. Same, two names for the same place. People just they want to think it's in the Sinai Peninsula and they're wrong. It's in Saudi Arabia, in the land of Midian. But we don't have time to get into that. The thing is, I want you to see, so there's two revelations. There's the revelation uh, that occurred on the road to Damascus and the one on Mount Horeb. I want you to keep that in your mind because it's important. We're going to talk about it again in just a second. But let me give you some other examples. Do you remember the revelation that came to Noah? And he said, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. The revelation that came to Mary first. You're going to have a child. How can that be? I'm a virgin. Oh, the Spirit of the Lord God's going to come upon you. You have been selected. Blessed are you among women. And then to her husband Joseph, don't put her away. What is in her is something that God did. Or the revelation he gave to Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. And he said, I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your family. And I want you to go to the land where I'm showing you. What land is that? No, the land I'm going to show you. You start moving. Pack up and go. Maybe one to me that is one of the most painful. Right near the end. You know, you look at this. Moses was a great, great leader. And one of the things that a great leader does is he trains someone to follow him. Who did Moses train to follow him? Joshua. Joshua. So right near the end of Joshua's life, we come to this passage in Judges chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Now the angel of the Lord, and we've studied this before in our class, who is the angel of the Lord? Pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal. That's the first place where the tabernacle was. Now, they have a temple. No, that's where the tabernacle is at this time. And from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt. All of Israel has gathered there. You know, here the Lord is traveling from Gilgal. You think the word goes out? They all want to be there to see what's going to happen. And this is what he says to them when they gather in Bochim. He said, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. But as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land and you shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? How would you like to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? And he looked you straight and he said to you, Doug, 
what is this that you have done? Oh my gosh, I would want that. Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of the people, lifted up their voices and wept. All of these are examples of revelation. Does revelation occur today? No, no, it does not. It does not. Now you say, can God speak to one of us? Yes. But now when he spoke to Noah, who is that for? Everyone. When Jesus spoke to the people here, was, who was that for? I'm, when revelation, it's, it's something that everybody is involved. When God gave the revelation to Paul, what was the purpose for that? To tell everybody else. And that is inspiration. Now, Don, when he gave him a revelation on the road to Damascus, did what he say, was it written down? Yes, and it, but it was Luke who wrote it down, the follower of Paul. But it was, the revelation was recorded, and now it's inspired. We wouldn't have known what it was said unless Luke wrote it for us. Now, all the things he said for three years on Mount Horeb, was it written down? I don't think so. Some of the things were. Some of the things weren't. We don't know what all was said in Mount I mean, and when Paul gives us these things he's writing, does he say, I learned this on Mount Horeb? No. So we don't know. That more is revelation what happened on Mount Horeb. But what happened on the road to Damascus? It's clearly is inspiration. What is inspiration? This is when God chooses to preserve his message by written form, recording it in written form, through the means of one of his or more of his dedicated followers. If there was an inspiration, what wouldn't you have? The Bible. You wouldn't have it. The Bible is the result of that inspiration. Let me talk about this just a second. There are two key verses relating to the inspiration of the scriptures. I want you to look at with me. One is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. It says, For all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doc, for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate. Adequately equipped. I want you to look at that word inspired. It's the word thanonustos, meaning God breathed. In other words, God breathed this when Paul wrote, I mean, yeah, when Paul wrote this to me, God breathed this through Paul and Paul wrote it down. That's inspiration. It's coming from the Holy Spirit. It is in its original autograph copy, that means when Paul wrote it the first time, well, Paul didn't write it a second time, he wrote it each time once, but when he wrote 2 Timothy, that was inspired, word of God, unquestionable, inerrant, complete. Let me give you another example. Uh, the second passage, it's found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He's talking about inspiration here. And this word moved is the Greek word pharaoh. And you know what it means? It means to fill the sail of a sailboat. If calm and you're in a sailboat, what happens? You sit. But when the wind fills the sail, you move. That's the concept of Pharaoh, filling the sail with wind. That's the concept here of he filled the 
heart and soul of that man so that he was moved by the Holy Spirit and recorded this message. Now, what about Damascus being uh, destroyed? Because it says it's a prophecy against Damascus. So is that a prophecy or a revelation? Because no man, it says, see Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. And where is that found? Isaiah uh, 17. Yes, and that, that's coming or has come. But Damascus, if you go over there, and Eddie leads groups over there all the time. And if you want to go to Israel, you ought to talk to him. But they build, and it gets destroyed. Then they come back, and they build again. And then something happens, and it burns down. And there's layer after layer after layer. Sometimes the city rebuilt, what, seven or eight times? So I think that's important to see. Now, I quoted in there a verse in Acts 27. That's where it uses this word Pharaoh again to talk about filling the sail. Now, here's a problem. We've got a heresy creeping into the evangelical church. Now, there's a lot of, you know, for a long time, Satan has just attacked inerrancy and tried to say the Bible's not inerrant. And most conservative scholars would understand that if you try to take inerrancy out, these scriptures like we've just talked about and some others, in the same way, you just violate the whole text of the Bible. You know, there's so many passages. You know, Jesus said, nothing in the law, not even the smallest stroke of a pen is going to ever pass away. He's talking like this. So they have changed their attack. And now they're saying, we're not saying that the Scripture is not inerrant. It is inerrant. But it's not completely sufficient. We need more. We need some psychology to help us. We need some cultural understanding to help us. We need this. It's not all sufficient. It's inerrant, but not all sufficient. Well, you know, when I hear that, I, very strong words come to my mind. Uh, fortunately, my mouth is not engaged when that happens. But is there any scriptural places or scriptural information or proof that the Bible should be all sufficient for us? Ah, look at Jude 1.3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. What is the faith? That's the understanding of theology, the faith for Christ. Earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. Once and for all. Do you need anything more? Once and for all, hand it down, everything that you need. Well, you know, what's wrong with adding a little bit here or there? Look in Revelation 22, verse 18. I testify, John says, to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Well, that's pretty serious sounding, doesn't it? In 2 Timothy, where we just looked at, I want you to follow this verse carefully as I read it. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for most good works. Doesn't say that, does it, Steve? Every good work. We're equipped for everything from what's in the Scriptures. In 2 Peter... Verse 1, 3, and 4, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, not some things, most things, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us 
by his own glory and excellence. Now, clearly, we understand that God speaks to us through revelation and inspiration. We've established that there's no longer any revelation going on. The revelation has stopped. Is there any more inspiration going on? No, it has stopped too. The canon of the scripture, you know, I can remember one time, I was in the car with my mother, I was small. She was listening, I don't know, Dr. DeHaan or somebody like that, and I heard that phrase. I said, Mom, I want a canon of the scripture. Will you get me one of those canons? <laughs> she laughed and she said, okay. And then two or three days later, she handed me this Bible. And I said, what's this? You said you wanted a canon of the scriptures. I didn't want that. I wanted a canon. But do you think that kid always remembered what the canon of the scriptures was? Yes, he did. And so we go on. Those things are finished. But there is one final means that God has of revealing to us, of giving us an understanding and helping us with discernment in the scriptures. And it's called illumination illumination, the illumination of the scriptures. What does that mean? Illumination means to shed light upon or the action of illuminating or stating something being illuminated such as a spiritual or intellectual enlightenment. God will illuminate. And when this vortex came together of the end of time, many going to and fro and the knowledge becoming gathered that's so great God is illuminating the scripture to us. Is there any passages in the Bible that speak of this kind of illumination? The answer is yes. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 15. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Spiritually appraised. God illuminates the scripture. Have you ever read the Bible and you're reading some passage that you've read before, and then you see something that you've never seen before. Yes. It's called illumination. The Holy Spirit does that. I can remember telling my, how did you miss this, Doug? <laughs> but I did, because he didn't want me to see it at the time. In 1 John 2, 27, he says, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, it is true and not a lie. It is just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So I am convinced. This three-pronged vortex has come together. The end of time, the moving to and fro, and the increase. God will unconceal. God will unseal his vision. And he's going to give us illumination as to what's going on. Many will investigate. We will see these things. We will start looking at, for example, archaeological discoveries. Are they not happening more and more all the time? Every time the archaeological spade turns, we get more support for the Scripture. I have one serious desire I wished would have happened. Uh, I can't think of the word I'm using now. I just wish it would have happened. I wish... When John Morris had gone up on Mount Eret, he'd been able to discover the ark. Wouldn't that be cool? How'd that boat get up there, you progressive? Somebody just lifted up there for some reason? What would they need it that big for, do you think? But, you know, history, geography, paleontology, linguistic science, all of these things. Let's close in a word of prayer. Again, sorry I keep you so late, but I keep getting excited about the things that I find, and I want to share them with you. Father, thank you for the time that we could be here today. Thank you for 
preserving this wonderful book. Thank you, I'm praying, that you have unconcealed it for us, that you have removed the seal and allowed our hearts to be open. I pray that each and every one of us will seek illumination from you as we search these scriptures. They will do it eagerly. They will do it excitedly. They will be able to see the things that have been hidden for so long that you're now exposing to us. Help me, Father, to be faithful in studying, faithful in finding these things that I can share with my friends, my brothers and sisters here. Now, Father, help us realize we can't keep knowledge to ourselves. We can't keep the gift of your love and salvation to ourselves. It needs to be one that's shared. If there, I pray, Father, if there's anybody here today who has never received you as their personal Savior, they will come to me and, and ask me, or, or they will come to somebody else in the class and ask them how they can do that, and we can share with them how to receive the love and forgiveness that you've promised us. Father, be with this man who is a godly man who's going to be speaking today at our services. Fill him with the Holy Spirit. May he speak with power and uh, direction. I pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.